This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our time of studying God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thankful, we're thankful today that we have this time to come to study your word that it is through your word that you communicate to us, and it is through our study of the word that God the Holy Spirit takes these eternal truths and impresses them upon our soul, stores them in our memory, and then brings them back to our recall that we might be able to apply the things that we have learned at the time of need and at the time of testing. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, on the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ as uh, described by Matthew, we pray that we might come to understand its significance and the meaning of the text as it was intended and that you might help us to understand how the implications of this text uh, impact our own thinking and our own way of life, that we may respond in our uh, lives by belief in you, belief in the word, and living according to your what you have revealed in Scripture. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we're continuing from what we studied last time, which was on what the Bible teaches about healing and illness and sickness. There's a lot of confusion, as I stated last time, about the implications of the Scripture in relation to sickness, disease, and healing. In fact, there's a lot of just flat-out false communication, tremendous amount of deception that goes on both within the church and outside of the church. I pointed out last time that there is a dramatic difference between what is practiced by both some Christian uh, evangelists, televangelists, healing evangelists, that I would put under the classification of faith healing that is not any different from the faith healing of many that are not even Christians that are outside of the church. Uh, just because somebody appears to be healed, and they may even be genuinely healed of some disease or some malady, does not mean that anything that transpired is from God. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, there was a warning that was given by Moses, given by God through Moses to the people in terms of a test of revelation, in terms of a test of a prophet. And that if that a prophet were to appear, and if that prophet were to perform miracles, and if that prophet were to heal people, and the text is treating this as if this was something that actually happened, and yet his teaching, 
his prophecy, his content, did not conform to what was already accepted revelation from God, then he was not from God. The, the, even though in Scripture miracles may validate someone's ministry or someone's claim, they are not the ultimate test of authenticity. The ultimate test of authenticity is accuracy in relation to the revealed Word of God. False teachers will, according to the Scripture, perform miracles that appear to be legitimate. They may appear to heal people. In many times, one of the reasons that we've seen that people are healed is through um, something called the placebo effect. A placebo is like a sugar pill. A placebo is telling somebody that if they do something or they take a certain medication or something of that nature, that it will heal them. And they have faith in that solution, in that medicine, and to the degree that up, uh, upwards of 60% of people will show a positive response to a sugar pill as opposed to the drug or the actual antibiotic. That's the power of the mind. And so when people go to healing crusades and they go to uh, various other healers, they go through, uh, whether it's Eastern mystics and healing in that matter of mind control, or they go to uh, watch some healer on television, or as I mentioned last week, a couple of non-Christian uh, secular healers that are very, very popular in Russia, that, that they have a certain response. But just because they seem to have that response and just because you have an experience that appears to be mean that somebody healed you does not mean that God had anything to do with it. That's the whole point of Deut- warning of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 13. In fact, what we learn from Scripture is if you are a Christian and you interpret the Bible from your experience, you are not being obedient to Scripture. We interpret our experience from the Word of God. The Word of God tells us how things really are, and sometimes we experience things, and we don't know all the details. Even though we went through the experience, it appears to us that something happened and that we understand that this must be from God, and it is such a real experience. But we don't know all the data. We don't see into the invisible world. We don't understand the deceptions of Satan and the deceptions of the cosmic system. You don't understand everything there is about the psychology of your own soul. And as a result of that, we are easily deceived by our experience. And so we have to be extremely cautious. And the only foundation we have to understand that what the Bible teaches about healing is to just understand what the Bible says about healing. So let me go through a little summary, uh, focusing on the four questions I pointed out last time. First of all, does God heal today? Second, does God want you healthy and well? Uh, third, why, does, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? And fourth, was faith necessary to be healed? Now, the answer to the first question was, yes, indeed, God heals today. As we'll see, it's how does he heal today? Does he heal through intermediate agencies, i.e. healers or people with the gift of healing, or does he heal directly as a result uh, simply of prayer? Second, does God want you healthy and well? This points out the error, the heresy 
of what is known as the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it gospel uh, that is uh, uh, rife today in many, many congregations, and you see it a lot on television, and it is not biblical at all. It has its roots in a lot of Eastern mystical, metaphysical uh, religions and concepts. If you want to read a good expose that deals with some of this, there was a, a good book that came out back in the 1980s by Dave Hunt, who has recently gone to be with the Lord, and that book was called The Seduction of Christianity, and that was uh, was an excellent book. So no, God does not want you healthy and well in that sense. We live in a world that is fallen. We live in a world where there is illness, where there is disease, where there are many, many problems, where there's poverty. The Lord said that poor will be with us always, uh, that, that there will be illness. Uh, Christ died for our sin. He did not die, die for the specifics of healing. We'll get to the healing issue. Some people teach, well, there was healing in the atonement, and that's because they fail to understand how to exegete and understand Scripture. I hate to be so blunt, but that's the way it is. We have to look at what the text says, not read things into the text of Scripture. And then fourth, we often hear a myth that the reason people are not healed is that they don't have enough faith. The problem is that there are many examples, numerous examples in the Bible, where there's no mention at all of the faith of the person that is healed. In fact, in some cases, we're not even sure if they were a believer in Christ in terms of him being the Messiah. They just realized this was a guy who could heal them. They were they had a problem, and they went to him for healing. But there's no indication in the text whatsoever that the person was actually a, a believer in Jesus Christ. So we looked at this distinction between faith healing, the pseudo-healing that takes place. In fact, there are going to be these kinds of pseudo-miracles. I call them pseudo-miracles not because it's, it's a phony, but because it's not coming from the source of God as claimed. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 describes the fact that the Antichrist, the prince who is to come, who will rule over the ten-nation uh, conf- confederacy of the revived Roman Empire during the uh, future tribulation period, will confirm his claims to be the Messiah, and he is a false Messiah. He will confirm his claims by performing many signs and wonders that will deceive many, and the Scripture says, if possible, even the elect. Even believers, that that just because you're a believer doesn't mean you're free from deception. So as we looked at this first question, does God heal today? I made a distinction that God has healed historically through different means. First, he's healed, uh, the two categories would be, um, first of all, indirectly or immediately. That is through a human agent. And sometimes it was an apostle who healed. Sometimes uh, it was a prophet in the Old Testament who healed. That would be a supernatural healing through a human agent. But then there are other times when a person is healed uh, um, immediately, or excuse me, intermediately or indirectly through natural means. God uses a doctor, a physician, uses medication in order to cure the disease and cure the problem. 
So we have the supernatural miraculous healing, such as the healing of the lame man in Acts 3.11, and then natural healing, which is probably the case, as I pointed out, with Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 3. And then we have the fact that God also heals directly without a human agent at times. But healing, even in the Bible, was extremely rare. There was such a small minority of people who were healed because the purpose of Jesus' coming wasn't to heal people. The healing was simply something that was a sign of who he claimed to be the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted that when the Messianic age came, when the Messiah came, when the kingdom was in effect, that he would heal all diseases. And so as he came at the first advent to offer the kingdom to Israel, he was giving a preview of coming attractions through these miracles. He was showing through these miracles that, yes, he was capable. He had the power to do what the Messiah would, was, was predicted to do from the Old Testament and that he could fulfill that. And that, so this was a foretaste. So he wasn't healing everybody. He wasn't bringing in the kingdom. He was offering the kingdom. This is, again, a, a misunderstood concept in Scripture, is that Jesus came to offer the kingdom at the first coming. When he was rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, the kingdom was completely totally, absolutely, unequivocally, without any doubt, and can I make myself any more clear, postponed until Jesus returns. You can't have the kingdom without a king. And he currently is not a king. That's another myth you hear spread through hymns and popular choruses. Jesus doesn't receive the crown for the kingdom. According to Daniel chapter 7, as the Son of Man, until the Ancient of Days gives him that crown, gives him the kingdom, and it is at that point that he returns to the earth at the second coming. That occurs at the end of the tribulation period. In the future, it's described in Revelation chapter 19. Until then, according to Revelation chapter 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, Jesus is sitting on not on his throne, but on his Father's throne. He has not yet received the kingdom, so therefore he is not yet the king. He offered the kingdom, the kingdom was rejected, so it's postponed. What's happening in the Gospels is a foretaste, a foreshadowing, a preview of coming attractions. So God does not heal directly, I mean, uh, indirectly through uh, prophets and apostles today. He does heal as an answer to prayer. So the second thing I pointed out was that the issue is not the question, does God heal today? People will hear what I teach and they say, well, you don't believe God heals. I said, no, you haven't really listened. I believe God heals. I believe God heals people numerous times throughout the year. It's not no, the normal expectation for the church age, and he doesn't do it in the church age through intermediate healers. Okay, so the issue is, how has God revealed that he heals today? And I say it that way because what people will come back with and say, well, you're putting God in a box. I say, no, 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 no. You still don't understand. If you really believe the Bible is the word of God, then you have to believe that God reveals how he works in human history. You can't say, well, I had this experience, so it must be God. 
You have to put the Bible first. The Bible is what you go to for your authority. And in the Bible, God says, I'm working at different times in different ways in different dispensations. I don't, I, I'm so great and I'm so omnipotent that I don't have to work the same way in every dispensation. And what happens is people come along and they say, well, you don't believe God does miracles today. No, I said, I don't believe God does miracles to, today in the way he did them during the first advent because that was for a specific purpose, and that purpose no longer exists. God has revealed that he is doing things differently during the church age than what he did in earlier ages and from what he will do in future ages. So the issue is, in the second question, has God revealed that we should expect his intervention in our illnesses, diseases, and deformities as a normal experience of the Christian life? And the answer to that is a resounding no. It wasn't a normal expectation even among believers during Christ's incarnation. Of those who were healed represented a small minority of those who trusted in him as Messiah uh, during the time that he was upon the earth, even when the offer of the kingdom was made again during the period of Acts under the apostles in the early part of the church age, as they made a re-offer of the kingdom to Israel before it was rejected. Even during that time, there were many who were not healed. There were just a small minority that were healed. This was a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what would come in the kingdom. So we then address the question, why did Jesus and the apostles heal? Why did they heal? And second, was faith and or salvation a prerequisite for healing? So what we looked at briefly, Jesus healed to present his messianic credentials. This is seen in passages like Isaiah 42, 7, 29, 18, and Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. This was what was prophesied of the Messiah. Another thing that we saw was that healings were never performed performed merely for their physical benefit. If Jesus' mission was to heal, then he would have gone to the counterpart of hospitals at that time, and he would have healed all who were sick. But Jesus healed those who came to him, and in some cases those who were in his in his presence, but his focal point wasn't healing. His focal point was the message. And last time I went through a series of verses showing that each time Jesus healed, it was for a purpose. In Matthew 8:17, it foreshadowed messianic fulfillment of Isaiah 53. In Matthew 9, 6, that will come to a demonstrated authority to forgive sins. In Matthew 11:2 2 to 19, it was to confirm his identity to John the Baptist when he was in prison. In Matthew 12, 15 to 21, it foreshadowed fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Don't try to write all this down. I covered it much more slowly last time. In John 9, 3, demonstrated the reality of Christ as the light of the world. In John 11, 4, it was to demonstrate the glory of God. In John 20, 30 to 31, it was to demonstrate through those signs in the Gospel of John the truth of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. And in Acts 2, 22, it was God the Father performed these signs to authenticate Jesus' claims. And so that brings us now to the second point, that Jesus' miracles were not performed randomly or indiscriminately. He did not always heal those who needed healing or perform on demand, but he did so to fulfill the plan of God, as stated in John 5, 3 through 5, and Matthew 12, 38 through 40. This was why Jesus healed. A third reason that Jesus healed 
Our third observation about Jesus' healing is that his healing was immediate or within minutes. And two occasions, they were not quite immediate, but they were pretty close to immediate. They were not gradual. They did not take place over a period of time, and the consequences of of his healing were irreversible. People didn't go home and then have the symptoms come back a week or two later. Uh, That's a sign often of some sort of psychosomatic healing or some sort of placebo effect. Uh, Divine healing was immediate. It's irreversible. It doesn't come back. Fourth thing we observe from looking at all of the miracles, all of the healings, rather, that are mentioned in Scripture, is that there were really an abundance of healings. Saying there were an abundance of healings doesn't mean that he healed everyone. There were just a number of places, like we have in our passage, where Jesus heals a large number of people that came to him. And, for example, in Matthew 8, 16, we read one of these summary statements. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. There are several of those types of summary statements, so we don't know exactly how many he healed, but he healed those who were brought, who came to him and those who were brought to him. So there were abundance of healings to indicate that he was the Messiah. This is the whole point here in this particular section because the very next verse says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And as I pointed out when we studied this uh, a couple of weeks ago, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse uh, 4. And in Matthew's citation of that verse, he cha- he's quoting from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, but Matthew changed the verbs because the verbs in, in, in Isaiah indicated a sacrifice, but the verbs that he uses in his citation are not terms that were used for ritual sacrifice. So he's not referring to the atonement here at all. He's referring to the fact he takes this and applies it to the situation, and he, and he says that the Messiah was to uh, heal us from, uh, from diseases. It's not the same ritual term that's used in the Hebrew of Isaiah 53, verse, verse 4. Fifth point is that Jesus healed in, in a variety of ways, but one way he does is by touch uh, and command. And just somewhat, he would touch someone, as we saw with the lepers. He would touch the leper, and the leper was cleansed. In another case, in John 5, 8 through 9, he issued a command. He was not physically present. We see the same thing in, in the second uh, miracle in this chapter, the healing of the centurion ser, ser, uh, servant. It's just done through command. Uh, a, a third way is he, through the touch of his cloak. We see in Matthew chapter 9 a, a woman who comes up and she just touches his cloak, and as a result uh, she is healed. And then a, a fourth way is that he spit on the ground, he mixed it with the dirt on the ground and applied this to the eyes of the blind man, and they were healed. So he, he's not restricted to one particular uh, particular method. And then the sixth point we observe is that not all who were healed expressed faith or were saved. Now, that's a very important point. In fact, the writers of Scripture do not make a point out of the salvation status of the person that's healed or necessarily their faith status. In some places, they do. For example, in Matthew chapter 9, when we're talking about um, 
the woman who touched uh, the hem of his garment in verse 22. Uh, Jesus says, uh, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. He comments on the fact that she had faith. But there are many times when the faith of the person isn't mentioned. For example, we go back and we look at the example of the healing of the centurion ser- uh, servant in verses 5 through 13, and the centurion clearly had fa- faith, but we don't know anything about whether or not this, his servant who was healed had faith. When we look at the example of um, the healing of the paralytic in the first part of chapter 9, uh, his friends had faith, but we don't know if he had faith. We don't know if he was a believer or not. Nothing is said. The writers of Scripture do not make a point of emphasizing faith on the part of the person who is healed all all the time. Uh, in fact, in some cases, we doubt whether or not the person ever was saved because they seem to be uh, just happy they're healed, and that's it. There's never an indication of their spiritual status. When we go beyond the Gospels and we go into Acts, and we just completed a study of Acts on Tuesday night this last year, and I went through this in detail showing that Acts must be understood as a transitional book. It is a book between the end of the age of the law and it is portraying for us the beginning of the church age. And we ought to ask, well, why are these things there? Why is it that you have more miracles at the beginning of the book than you do at the end of the book? It's not because they had less faith. It's because as the church is transitioning from spiritual infancy until to a more mature church where they have a completed canon of Scripture and they have the uh, most of the New Testament is written, there's less and less of a need for miracles, for revelation, and for, for healings to take place. Uh, it's transitional. It's history. It's not telling us that this is the way things should be. It's describing the way things were. It is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. It is not saying this is how the church should live. It is saying this is what happened, what God the Holy Spirit did to give birth to the church at the beginning. And one of the things that we see is that in the apostolic age, signs and wonders and miracles and healings were part of the authentication, the credentials of the apostles. Second Corinthians 12, 12 said the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, the, the, the requirement for being a disciple is, number one, you had to have seen Jesus. You had to have heard him teach, and you had to be personally commissioned by Jesus. And so there were very, very few apostles. Uh, there were actually only 11 plus the apostle Paul. Apostles were used, the term apostle was used in two senses. People get confused about this. It, the word apostle means someone who is commissioned to a task. Well, what, you have two types of apostles in the New Testament. One is an apostle that is commissioned directly by Jesus Christ to a task. You have a second type of apostle that was commissioned by a local church to go out as a missionary. The first kind of apostle is what we're talking about here, those that were commissioned by Christ. When we come to uh, Revelation, we see that the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem are the 12 apostles. The Bible doesn't recognize more than that. That's what it states at the at the at the end when we're in the, the the New Jerusalem. And so we don't add to the apostolic body. We don't have people today. There are some who claim to be apostles and take on the title of apostles, but that's not biblical. Uh, how, how, only in the sense 
of someone who's sent out by a church as a missionary. And so we shouldn't use that word because it just confuses people because they don't understand the distinction. And a genuine apostle, one of the twelve, was vindicated and validated by the miracles that he performed. We see this in places like Acts chapter 3 and 4 where Peter and John healed the lame man so that not just to heal him, they weren't just just doing that because they were nice guys and this guy had been lame for so long and they took sympathy upon him. They healed him to gain a hearing from the crowds uh, out on, on the steps of the temple there at, at the at the beautiful gate in order to present the gospel of the kingdom to those who are present in the temple. They're not doing it for the sake of healing. They're doing it to win people to a gospel uh, to the gospel message. And Acts five twelve tells us that at the hands of the apostles. Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. So there were numerous miracles performed to validate and verify the message of the apostles. Then there are a number of examples where the faith of the recipient was not present at the time of healing. For example, the nobleman's son. This took place also in Capernaum, described in John 4, 46 to 54. Uh, he was not a believer, but afterward he became a believer. Uh, second, we see the cripple at Bethesda, and he believes this uh, story that whenever the, an angel would come and stir up the waters, that the first person in would get healed. That was a, a legend that they had in the uh, in, in Jerusalem at that particular time. So the cripple at Bethesda is described in John 5, 1 through 9. He's not, he's not a believer. Jesus just randomly seems to pick him out of the crowd and heal him. Third, the demon-possessed man in Capernaum on the, on the Sabbath that he heals does not appear to be a believer or to have faith in Christ. Fourth, the paralyzed man that, that is healed uh, in Matthew 9, 2 through 8, which I mentioned a minute ago, uh, there's no mention of his faith at all. There's the faith of his, those that are with him. So his faith, whether or not he trusts in Jesus as Messiah or anything else, is not indicated. We may assume that it's there, but we're assuming without evidence. The text has to state it so we can be sure. We can't just dogmatically claim something because it seems to be right to us. Fifth, the centurion servant uh, in this uh, Matthew 8, 5 to 13, I mentioned earlier the centurion had faith, but there's no mention of the servant's faith. And then there's the blind and the mute man uh, that Jesus uh, heals, restores his sight and speech in Matthew 12, 22 and Luke eleven fourteen. There's no mention of his faith. The Gadarene demoniacs mentioned, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks in Matthew 8, there's no mention of their faith. Uh, there's a deaf-mute, de- demon-possessed man in Matthew 9, uh, no mention of his faith. The feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000 didn't have to express faith. They were just hungry. They just wanted lunch. Uh, and Jesus and his disciples are the ones who recognized the problem, and Jesus performed the miracle. It had nothing to do with their, the faith of the crowd at all. It was the grace of God. Same thing with the feeding of the 4,000. Mentioned in Matthew chapter 15, 29 to 31, and Mark 8, 1 through 9. And then we have the healing of the, uh, healing the Canaanite woman's daughter. The mother had faith, not necessarily the daughter. This is described in Matthew 15, 21 to 28, and Mark 
7, 24, uh, 24 to 30. We go on. There's so many of these. The blind and the mute man mentioned in Matthew 12, 22. Uh, excuse me, that's a repeat slide. The deaf mute in Decapolis in Mark uh, 7, 31 to 37. The demon-possessed boy in Matthew 17, 14 to 18. Uh, the res- restoration of Malchus's ear. Remember, he's the temple servant. And when the uh, Romans come to arrest Jesus and Judas is there and they, they reach out, uh, Peter grabs his sword and he cut off the ear of the temple servant. And Jesus picked the ear up and put it back on and healed him. But Malchus was not a believer. Malchus was not seeking healing. It was just the instantaneous gracious response of the Lord uh, to restore the ear. The two blind men, uh, Jericho, Matthew nine twenty seven to 31, no indication of their faith. And nine of the ten lepers that were healed by Jesus don't respond in faith. They just go on. It was only one that responded in faith. So the point that I've covered from all of this is that many passages in Scripture, many examples were not based on faith. There was, was faith present in many of them. The healing of the leper in Matthew 8, 2 through 4. The healing of the crippled hand in Matthew 12, 9 to 13. Uh, Peter walking on the water in Matthew 14, 24 to 33. Uh, the man born blind in John 9, 1 through 7 had faith. Uh, the uh, blind Bartimaeus uh, had faith. Uh, the woman with the uh, continuing hemorrhage in, that we'll study in Matthew 9, 20 to 22, had faith. One of the ten lepers uh, had faith. The first miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter uh, 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, indicated faith on the part of the disciples, as did the second miraculous catch of uh, fish in John 21, 1 through 11. My point in all of this is that we hear these myths that are promoted by different people that you, if you aren't healed, it's because you don't have enough faith or you don't have faith like a child. And many of you have heard me tell this story about my mother. My mother contracted polio in the last major polio epidemic in the United States, which was centered, the epicenter of that um, epidemic was in Harris County. And she contracted polio in July of, uh, of uh, 1952, and I never saw my mother walk. She was pregnant with me at the time. Uh, I was born two months prematurely, about two weeks after she contracted polio. And as a child, I remember that she had these these metal braces that she would put on her legs, and she had these uh, uh, crutches that she would use, and she had gone through intensive therapy at Warm Springs, Georgia, uh, which was the place where polio patients would go if they could afford it for, for extensive therapy, and she had gone through all of that. And she worked hard to try to recover that muscular usage. And she would, every day, she would uh, go through this, this painful and difficult uh, exercise of trying to walk on those crutches. Absolutely no muscle usage whatsoever from her abdomen down. Uh, it was just non, non-existent because that's what polio would do for you. And I remember as a child thinking, well, Jesus can heal her. And I would pray every night. Now, that's the faith of a child. And my mother never recovered walking ability, not once. And it wasn't because I lacked faith, and it was because that wasn't God's plan. God answers prayer three ways, yes, no, and wait a while. And his answer a lot of times for us is no, that's not my plan. I'm using this for a purpose. 
And so this this idea that 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 it's your faith that doesn't uh, that, that that renders the healing inoperative is just garbage. It puts a guilt complex on you. And people who say that are teaching doctrine straight from the pit of hell. It is not biblical. It is designed to promote guilt and anguish, and and to in many cases to just line their own pockets with offerings. And this is horrible. It takes advantage of the sheep. I remember hearing one healing evangelist years ago who said, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep, and now it's time to shear the sheep or pull out your wallets. And sadly, this is normative in many, many, many circles. And so uh, we see that there is, there is this emphasis on healing. Now, a couple of things as we close. In the Old Testament, you have the word Rapha. And there are a lot of people today who emphasize this word Rapha. It means healing in the Old Testament. But it's often used in the Old Testament not just for physical disease, but it's used as a synonym for the solution to sin. For example, in Jeremiah 3.22, the Lord says to Israel, return you backsliding children. See, he doesn't say you sick children, you ill children, you lame, blind, or deaf children. He's not talking about a physical problem. He's talking about a spiritual problem. And he says, return and I will heal you. The healing there has to do with, is a synonym for forgiveness. This is the same kind of thing we see in Isaiah 53, verse 5. This is a verse that is often taken out of context to say, see, there's healing in the atonement. Notice what the parallelism here. What is the passage talking about? He was wounded for our transgressions, sin. He was bruised for our iniquities, sin. It's talking about substitutionary atonement, as I pointed out in the Lord's table this morning. The chastisement or the punishment for our peace, that is to restore peace between us and God. We're at a state of enmity now. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, physical healing it doesn't have anything to do with the context. The context is talking about solving the sin problem. And so we have to understand the word healing there in the context that this is used as a synonym for the atonement paying the price for our sin. And sin is the root cause of all disease, not personal sin, but the sin of Adam. Because as soon as Adam sinned, it plunged the world into corruption, and as a result of that, we had the rise of death and disease and suffering and famines and wars and everything else. So the root cause is sin, and when sin's penalty is paid for, then the root solution is available because sin has been paid for. And then on the basis of the fact that sin's been paid for on the cross, then God is free to heal and God is free to to save. And so that takes us back to the gospel, that the real issue for each of us is our relationship to God. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then the solution for you is to trust in Christ as Savior, to believe in him, that he died for you and paid your sin penalty so you could have eternal life. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the issue is to walk with him. The issue is to realize all of the blessings that we have been already given as Christians, that God didn't leave anything out. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, through verse 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He didn't drop out one or two that you get later on. 
we already have them. The only way we learn about them and can access them is through our study of God's Word and believing them, learning about them, and living in light of them. That's the challenge for every single believer. And so the choice is yours. We either live in light of what Christ did on the cross or we reject it. If we live in light of it, then God promises that eventually there will be a complete complete justice in our lives, and we will experience full healing eventually. That's in the future. And we might, on occasion, experience a glimpse of that in our own lives. As believers, we are to go forward. If you are an unbeliever, the issue is that you need to trust in Christ as your Savior. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to focus upon these things today, to understand what your Word teaches that we might not be misled or distracted or deceived, but that we might understand that that we have uh, 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 we live in the devil's world. There's disease, there's heartache, there's suffering, there's all kinds of things that take place, and you deliver us through them, not necessarily from them, and that we are to trust in you. That when we have promises like First Corinthians ten thirteen that uh, there's no testing, and health is a test. There's no testing taking you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the test make a way to escape. Not so you avoid it, but that you may be able to endure it, to persevere in the midst of it by trusting God, even though you're fighting a debilitating illness, Maybe you're fighting an illness that may be fatal. Whatever it may be, trusting in God that if he will and he can heal you, but he may not, the chances are he will not. He will use this, though, for his glory to give you an opportunity to reflect his grace in your life during the time of testing that you may be a faithful witness to others. And, Father, we pray for anyone here that is not saved, anyone here who's never trusted in Christ, that they're that the eyes of their soul would be enlightened to the truth of the gospel and they, they, they might respond by simply trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for their eternal salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.